0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Five Bytes podcast. I'm your host Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage lockdown applications, Java browsers and mitigate ransomware plus more. And also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And of course, also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. The AWS reInvent conference was held this week in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now there were several pretty big announcements made during the conference. And if you're familiar with AWS, I mean, one thing you'll know for sure is it's a very vast uh, cloud offering. There's a whole lot of different features and menus within AWS for you to choose from. Uh, So as you might expect, There have been a lot of announcements and I can't cover every single announcement on the podcast so I just selected some that are maybe my own personal highlights from what I read about the different announcements for the week. Uh, So with that said, let's dive in. First up, they announced Amazon ECS Service Connect that enables easy communication between microservices. They say that this Amazon ECS Service Connect is a new capability that simplifies building and operating resilient distributed applications. The ECS Service Connect provides an easy network setup and seamless service communication deployed across multiple ECS clusters and virtual private clouds. So you know, microservices being those containers, obviously very important to be able to have them communicate across networks and actually be able to talk to one another despite the fact they might be containerized. They say you can add a layer of resilience to your ECS service communication and get traffic insights with no changes to your actual application code. And they also say, with the service, you can refer and connect to your services by logical names using a namespace provided by AWS Cloud Map, and automatically distribute traffic between ECS tasks without deploying and configuring load balancers. So it seems like a pretty intelligent service. And it's also got some built-in traffic resilience for handling things like doing health checks, um, automatic retries for 503 errors, so like the service is not available possibly because of maintenance or something like that. Uh, they've got connection draining and more. So it seems like a very smart, hopefully robust system for allowing microservices to communicate across like a shared network space. Also announced by Amazon was the automated in AWS failback for AWS Elastic Disaster Recovery. They say that this is a new automated support and it provides a simplified and expedited experience to fail back amazon elastic compute cloud instances to the original region and both failover and failover processes can be conveniently started from the aws management console also for customers that want to customize the granular steps that make up a recovery workflow drs provides three new APIs that they've included in a blog post that I'll share with this episode. But essentially, you know, being able to customize the steps taken during an automatic failover could be very valuable because perhaps there's something unique, an application perhaps that you're running in your AWS infrastructure that needs to be brought back or failed over uh, in a certain sequence. Well, now it looks like with these APIs, you'll be able to account for that. And you'll obviously get this uh, simplified and expedited experience in just managing that failback. They also announced real-time analytics during live calls for Amazon Transcribe. They say that the real-time call analytics in the service provides APIs for developers to accurately transcribe live calls, and at the same time, identify customer experience issues and sentiment in real time. Transcribe call analytics uses state-of-the-art machine learning capabilities to automatically assess thousands of in-progress calls and detect customer experience issues, such as repeated requests to speak to a manager or cancel a subscription. Kind of sounds like it automatically detects Karens. It is pretty interesting. Uh, I used a product called Gong in a previous job, and that had some kind of AI and analytics for recorded calls so i could see where this could come in very useful and it sounds like at least in the use case that they're describing it's more about analyzing for sentiment and kind of dealing with customer experience but i bet it has other uses too especially if it's an api so we talked a little bit about failover capabilities already but there's also new failover controls for amazon s3 multi-region access points And it says for this, the failover controls for the multi-region access points lets you shift S3 data access request traffic routed through an Amazon S3 multi-region access point to an alternative AWS region within minutes to test and build highly available applications for business continuity. The existing multi-region access point model treats all of the regions as active and can send traffic to any of them. The model that they introduced this week lets you designate regions as either active or passive so you know selecting regions and basically having some hot and some cold based on your own environment your own applications and what your actual use cases are so it sounds like a pretty nice feature so i'm already going longer on this uh, than i had hoped so i'll just kind of quickly go through some other announcements. That includes the Amazon RDS optimized reads and optimized writes. And of course, Amazon RDS, I believe, is the relational database service. So it's their equivalent, I guess, a Cosmos DB. And yeah, if I sound, out of touch and ignorant, (laughs) it's because I am, but I'm just basing that off uh, memory, which is shaky at best. But essentially, they've got some Amazon RDS optimized reads, optimized writes, and they're saying the reads could be executed 50% faster when they're optimized in this way, and you can also deliver writes uh, twice as fast. And they say that this throughput, or the increased throughput is at no extra cost too, so sounds pretty promising. They also announced automated data discovery for the Amazon Macy service. They announced 22 new data connectors for the Amazon app flow service, including some connectors for Facebook ads, Google ads, Instagram ads, LinkedIn ads, MailChimp, Zendesk cell or chat, QuickBooks, Stripe, GitHub, and more. They announced something called Comprehensive Controls Management which is going to be in preview for the AWS Control Tower and they say you can use it to apply managed preventative, detective, and proactive controls to accounts and organizational units by service, control objective, or compliance framework. They say AWS Control Tower does the mapping between them on your behalf, saving time and effort. And with the new capability, you can now also use AWS Control Tower to to turn on AWS Security Hub Detective Controls all across accounts in an OU. So always good to have something that's kind of automated and proactive and uh, mitigating issues for you as they arise. Something that caught my eye, whether or not it would be very kind of enterprise-focused or something that's going to appeal to a lot of enterprises since they're already using Similar services, I'm sure, but they announced AWS Wicker, which is a new secure end-to-end encrypted communication service for enterprises that comes with auditing and regulatory requirements met. So this is, I guess, a communication channel that's going to be end-to-end encrypted. I know I've reported on the podcast before that in terms of encryption, uh, Teams is pretty shaky, so maybe they'll go for the jugular on the marketing of this. And just quickly, some of the other announcements included Amazon Athena for Apache Spark, uh, general-purpose compute-optimized and memory-optimized Amazon EC2 instances with higher packet processing performance for those high-end workloads. Uh, There's new AWS config rules that now support proactive compliance settings. There's also a new AWS marketplace for containers, which now supports direct deployment to Amazon EKS clusters, Now, I tried to quickly go through that because I was going a little long at the beginning, but AWS have shared a full list of all the announcements that they cover during the week, and I suggest you check it out for more information. And of course, I'll share links to that, to their announcements with this episode, which is episode 258, and you'll find that at 5bytespodcast.com, or alternatively, you may find it in the description of this episode on your podcast platform of choice. Also Amazon-related, but not related to any announcements from the AWS reInvent conference this week, it was reported by the Register that less than a month after Amazon had frozen hiring due to the worsening economic conditions, executives are now preparing to accept job applications within its public cloud business again in order to expand its data center footprint. So I guess demand from customers is such that they need the staffing in order to support and expand their efforts into new regions like on the podcast before I had reported that they're setting up a new region within Thailand, for example. So maybe that's a little glimmer of hope. It's a large tech company who had laid off a lot of employees and who had put a freeze on hiring who's now reversing that freeze at least for their public cloud business. Also this week, Where I'm based, it was reported that while there's still pretty high inflation, the inflation rate has actually reduced for the first time since the inflation had started to increase. So again, hopefully some indication that it's turning around. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Google have once again released a new emergency security update for the desktop version of the Chrome web browser, addressing their eighth zero-day vulnerability this year. This is a high-severity flaw, and it's being tracked as CVE-2022-4135, and it is a heap buffer overflow in GPU that was discovered by Clement Lassin of Google's Threat Analysis Group on November 22nd. Chrome users are recommended to upgrade to version 107.0.5304.121 or 122 for Windows and 107.0.5304.122 for Mac and Linux. Unfortunately, as is always the case, Google are not very forthcoming with technical details on this issue and just advise users to update the browser. Google researchers have linked a Barcelona-based IT company to the sale of advanced software frameworks that exploit vulnerabilities in Chrome, Firefox, and Windows Defender. The frameworks exploited vulnerabilities that Google, Microsoft, and Mozilla fixed in 2021 and 2022. The framework included both an exploit for the Chrome renderer, along with an exploit for escaping the Chrome security sandbox, which is designed to keep untrusted code contained in a protected environment that can't access sensitive parts of an operating system. And because these vulnerabilities were discovered internally, unfortunately, there's no CVE designations. It's reported the framework could be configured by the customer to set things like the maximum number of times to serve the exploits an expiration date, and rules specifying when a visitor should be considered a valid target. The framework included a booby trap PDF file that exploited CVE-2021-42298, which was a bug in the JavaScript engine of Microsoft Defender malware protection that was fixed back in November 2021. Simply sending someone the document was enough to gain coveted system privileges on Windows because Windows Defender automatically scanned incoming files. The files framework contained a fully documented exploit chain for Firefox running on Windows and Linux, and it was exploiting CVE-2022-26485, which was a use-after-free vulnerability that Firefox fixed last March. The researchers said files likely exploited the code execution vulnerability since at least 2019 long before it was publicly known or patched, and it worked against Firefox versions 64 through 68. The sandbox escape that the files feature relied on was fixed back in 2019. Ars Technica reports the company also sells another product that they claim is a software framework that provides everything a customer needs to serendipitously install malware on devices they want to spy on. So it sounds like they're pretty impressive frameworks that cover a lot of ground in terms of vulnerabilities. Now, obviously, as mentioned, some of these vulnerabilities date back to 2019. Some were patched back in 2021. So even though these frameworks exist, if you're up to date on your patching and you keep on top of patching even third-party products in your environment you're probably pretty well protected against these types of sophisticated tooling that makes it a little bit easier for hackers to take advantage of these vulnerabilities. So the lesson here should be patch, patch, patch quickly and often. And another pretty major security story from this week, but LastPass have disclosed a customer data breach. And before I get into more details, once again, LastPass have stated that users master passwords have not been compromised in this data breach. This unfortunately is the second breach this year of LastPass which is maybe not all that surprising given they must be a top target since it's a password managing tool. It is believed during the incident back in August that the attackers stayed in the system for four days and obtained information that allowed attackers to hit both LastPass and GoTo this time to breach some data. LastPass have hired Mandiant to perform an investigation to figure out the full extent of the breach. I believe last time that they were breached, they stated they do not store the passwords, so I would guess this is why they were able to so quickly come out and say, your master passwords are not compromised. But, I also assume they must store some sort of hash or something related to the passwords, so I guess we'll have to wait and see for more information as it comes out. I really hope nothing related to the passwords has been breached. LeapyComputer.com this week reported that Microsoft are investigating issues related to November patches that may lead to freezing and restarts on some domain controllers. The issues are said to be caused by memory leaks in the local security authority subsystem service. If this service crashes, logged in users immediately lose access to Windows accounts on the machine and they're shown a system restart error followed by a system reboot. Unfortunately, the out-of-band patch that was released to address the Kerberos issues that I reported on last week's episode of the podcast is also affected by this issue. So you just patched with an out-of-band patch. Well, unfortunately, even with that patch applied, you may be susceptible to having this issue here. There is a workaround available, and I'll share a link to that workaround with this episode, but for now, an update or a formal update is still pending from Microsoft. Per Larson on Twitter shared a reminder this week that the previously reported on Microsoft Store Apps deployments feature in Intune will be available from December 2nd. So there's a good chance uh, by the time you're listening to this episode, that that is now available. Peter Klapwick also tweeted something that was pretty interesting. He was pointing to some of the release notes that said there's some unsupported functionality for Microsoft Store Apps in Intune, and that includes capabilities that are not supported in Microsoft Store Apps, being enrollment status page interactions being not supported, Device provisioning of Microsoft Store Universal Windows Platform applications not supported. And any app that has an ARM64 installer is not supported. And his tweet poses the question, Do we just need to sit and wait for the company Portal app to get installed after an autopilot enrollment? Or is he missing something? And yeah, that's a pretty good question. Like, how is this going to fit into the equation of provisioning a desktop with autopilot and triggering those apps to actually come down onto the device? It'll be interesting to see. And I'll possibly follow up on this story next week because, as I said, you know, by the time of this recording, I think it's December 1st, the feature's not actually generally available yet citrix published an article ctx 474888 right around thanksgiving in the us and this article covers issues with vda registration stating that vdas fail to get registered with the cloud connectors in citrix das and with delivery controllers in citrix virtual apps and desktops on-premises environments after applying microsoft update kb5019966 or KB5019964, and this appears to be linked to the Microsoft Kerberos authentication issues that I reported on last week's episode of the podcast. As Citrix utilizes Kerberos authentication for authentication, registration, and several other items, it's important to check if the KB has been installed on the domain controllers, on the Citrix delivery controllers, or on the cloud connectors. The updates to Kerbos can also have additional side effects like not being able to GP update force or join a server to a domain or anything else that may use Kerberos. The Citrix article lists the out-of-band patches that should be installed depending on the OS that you're using and it also contains the registry mitigation that I alluded to on last week's episode and more. So obviously if you're a Citrix customer, check out the CTX article and I'll share it with this episode of the podcast. Google have announced improved meeting quality when joining with Google Meet on virtual machines. They say that Google Meet will now be able to detect if it is running on a virtual machine, and if it is, it will optimize the performance, meaning Google Meet users running on Citrix or VMware virtual desktops should notice a performance increase when a certain policy is set in that environment. And for getting started and setting that policy, administrators will be able to enable the Enterprise Hardware Platform API policy within Chrome, and they can visit the API page and Help Center to learn more, and I'll share links to that as well if you'd like to learn about it for yourself, if you're listening to this and maybe your user base uses Google Meet. Uh, Also, for end users, there's no end-user action required Google Meet will automatically optimize the experience when using a virtual desktop or virtual machine this is available to all Google workspace customers as well as legacy G Suite basic and business customers with the rapid release and scheduled release implemented by Google this will be a gradual rollout of up to 15 days for feature visibility And that rollout started on November 30th, so I believe that means it should be complete by December 14th. So if you don't see that ability there yet, it should be there soon. Microsoft have announced support for authentication using Microsoft Azure Active Directory as part of Microsoft Intra within Windows Admin Center in Azure. They say that customers can now use Azure AD authentication with Windows Admin Center in Azure for both domain and non-domain joint server infrastructure. They say this exciting capability unites Azure AD authentication with Windows Admin Center to easily manage your server infrastructure. Ars Technica had a funny and interesting article covering a recent report by the awesome Project Zero, which is a security team at Google who do really amazing work in terms of security research. I've covered a lot of their work on the podcast over the years, but recently they covered an incident of a GPU vulnerability on the Pixel devices, which are made by Google, and as Ars Technica said, they sent some friendly fire Google's way for how it was handled or not as the case may be. Well, at least maybe not as quickly as they would have liked. They ended their research paper on the topic with, quote, Just as users are recommended to patch as quickly as they can once a release containing security updates is available, so the same applies to vendors and companies. Minimizing the patch gap as a vendor in these scenarios is arguably more important as end users are blocking on this action before they can receive the security benefits of the patch companies need to remain vigilant follow upstream sources closely and do their best to provide complete patches to users as soon as possible end quote so a little bit of a dig it seems to their own parent company in this case which is actually good to see it's nice that project zero the researchers feel comfortable enough to actually aim that towards their own parent company LibbyComputer.com has reported this week that a hacker has been leveraging aged domains in a worldwide malvertising campaign. Malvertising is when you inject malicious JavaScript code in digital ads promoted by legitimate advertising networks, taking website visitors to pages that host phishing forms, drop malware, or operate scams. By using age domains, it said they bypass a lot of security scrutiny by way of the fact that the registered domains were registered years ago and perhaps perhaps the owners of the domains in this case, being hackers, did not use them over the years for nefarious purposes. So they had been able to be in existence without raising any alarms for many years. So they possibly fell outside the scope of suspicion. In these attacks, or at least in this instance, they are investment scams tied to cryptocurrencies, so users beware. This week, ZDNet reported on some of the latest updates in Windows 11 Insiders builds, suggesting that Microsoft are reportedly revisiting how search functions in the Windows 11 taskbar by possibly having search results appear in a separate window rather than right above the search bar. A future release may also show a small shield icon on a user's taskbar in the system tray to indicate when a PC is connected to a VPN. There was a really interesting report this week in Ireland on multiple companies who were trialing a four-day workweek. Now, this is only 12 companies who participated, but It showed some promising results, with nine of the 12 companies saying that they're going to extend the four-day workweek schedule past the trial period. Seven of the companies provided data on revenue, and of those, six reported monthly revenue growth, with only one seeing a decline. Two companies that tracked energy usage found reductions. And in general, management of the companies were said to have been very pleased with the outcome of the trial in terms of productivity and overall experience and on a scale from one to 10, from very negative to very positive, the company's average rating for the trial was 9.2. And obviously employees really liked this and they said that they felt less stress and had a better work-life balance. And the results indicate that 100% of the employees involved in the trial said they would prefer this reduced work schedule. Just to round out the news for this week, just a reminder that the next Cloud Paging User Group meetup will be held on December 9th, and this is going to be the fourth and final meetup of the year. And this one's a really great one if you've never joined one of the sessions before, because it is going to be a little more general. It will apply obviously to Cloud Paging application containers, but you might see some of the methodology and apply it to your own use cases. So the topic is mainly going to be around automation efforts for application packaging and deployment, and we're going to have the awesome Paul Eden joining us, and he's going to show us what he's been doing and share some of his insights and experience. Uh, Jurgen is also going to uh, speak a little bit to his experience, and I believe he might be covering the AIB Analyzer, and I'll also discuss my efforts with Uh, robotic process automation, too. And we'll just cover some of the general uh, cloud paging user group business as well. So if you've never joined one before, this is a great one to join. It's going to be held on December 9th at 2 p.m. GMT time. So I believe that's going to be 9 a.m. Eastern time for those in the U.S. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. So the first tips, I guess, this week would be AWS reInvent related. And first up, Pluralsight shared that you're able to check out 10 projects to sharpen your AWS skills, and they've curated this list of 10 projects that you can use. And if you're interested in learning about AWS to sharpen your skills, I'll share a link to those exercises or these projects with this episode. Uh, also AWS related, I sat down for a discussion with my buddy, Kevin Goodman, who works for AWS and we discussed AWS, and we discussed Amazon WorkSpaces, the new Amazon WorkSpaces Core, and of course, Numeson Cloud Pager too. And I'll share a link to that video if you'd like to uh, check out that discussion too. The Citrix Tech Zone shared a proof of concept guide for using secure access for Office 365 with Citrix Secure Private Access. And I know Citrix Secure Private Access is something that we covered at the Citrix User Group in Dublin a couple of weeks ago. It looked pretty cool and this might interest you if you're a Citrix customer. Petapixel.com had a really interesting use case for Raspberry Pi devices. This was a photon using Raspberry Pi, so an open source light meter. So if anyone's into kind of cinematography and photography and more where uh, very light sensitive work, this could be pretty cool. Now, unfortunately, I had to record this episode twice. I recorded it, uh, I think the 29th or the 30th at night. Uh, but the audio turned out to be junk so i had to re-record it on december 1st and i believe the cyber monday sale is now over but i was going to recommend the cyber monday sale for royal tsx which is a really great admin tool so if you need to remote to a lot of machines and um, you don't want to have to log into the machine each time and just streamline some of your processes in a, as an administrator. Uh, The Royal TSX is really awesome. It's got a Windows client, it's also got a Mac client. It's a real lifesaver, so you might wanna check that out. And finally, I've covered a lot of blogs on previous episodes of the podcast about integrating Winget or Windows Package Manager for Intune deployments. Well now Microsoft have actually shared their own tech community blog and video on the topic. So not just us in the community blogging on the topic, but Microsoft themselves now have some content around this too. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.